We broadcast from the sovereign land of the, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's the 2nd of December. We're in December, guys. Yeah, summer. Officially summer oh now, second day of summer. Really feel it 14 in there. degrees, the top of 14 degrees today. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely sold a lie about <laughs> Australia. But, um, yeah, it's December already. I can't believe it. And, yeah. Wow. Where's the year gone? And it's Monday. Yeah, where's it gone? Um, so how are your weekends? Busy, busy. Yeah. Preparing for the show. Preparing for the show. What about you, Anna? Yeah, preparing for the show. Saw some live music uh, with yourself, Alice, yes. on Friday. We got around to Northside Records. Mm-hmm. Uh, saw the release of the latest album from Sunnyside. And we're going to play um, a track from them in the yeah, show. Yeah, um, good event. <laughs> yeah, really good. And that's um, at a record shop. It's literally just around the corner from the studios. Yeah, right so, on our doorstep. Yeah, right <laughs> on the doorstep, which was awesome. Um yeah, same. I was preparing for the show. I mean, I'm moving at the moment, so that's always a bit of a rush around yes. anyway. Um, but yeah, mostly a good weekend. Excellent. And what have we got planned for today? We have at 8.15, we've got... Nicole Lee is phoning in to chat with me. Um, so yeah, Nicole's an advocate for disability rights and prevention of family violence. Um, and she's recently made a video for Do Your Thing, uh, which is a series of short videos produced by Women with Disabilities Victoria. Uh, so each video we hear from a different woman who tells her own story, which is a nice change instead of someone else telling their story for them. Yeah. And then at eight o'clock, we have Leah Rupana, and she has done some research with her colleagues at Oregon University. Um, she's at Melbourne University at the moment about why white married women are voting conservative and how that affected this sort of these swing votes that we're seeing in the US as well as in Australia, but mostly about the US. So we're going to be hearing um, an interview with Leah at eight o'clock. And then at 7.45, we've got Intan Paramandita, and she's going to be speaking to us a little bit about Indonesian um, literature and her background in, in, in that. And she's at the University of Sydney. Um, and she's going to be speaking to us a bit more about decolonizing feminism and education. So pretty phenomenal stuff. So yeah. <laughs> um, and then at half past seven. Uh, we're going to hear from Raylene Haradine who is a proud Watchable-Look and Lachi Lachi woman and chairperson of the Victorian Aboriginal Children and Young People's Alliance and CEO of Bendigo and District Aboriginal Cooperative. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the Commission for Children and Young People's report into child protection and the suicides of 35 kids between April 2007 and April 2019. Wow, it's going to be yeah, a heavy chat. And then who else have we got on? Uh, at 7.15, uh, Tim- Timothy O'Leary is going to come into studio to talk to us about energy-efficient buildings. Mmm, oh. cool. 
Okay, so and then I think we've got a bit of alternative news for our listeners. So we'll be back right in a sec with some alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah, boom. Nitty-gritty, hoo-wee. Right down to the real nitty-gritty. ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And for all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. Which way the wind blows. All right, and uh, now for some alternative news. Uh, so this week I was looking at the accessibility of the Melbourne tram lights. Um, so the government is required by law to make every tram line accessible by 2032, uh, but so far they're not meeting their targets. And a look at the current tram map is pretty shocking. Um, there are no uh, tram lines that are deemed fully accessible. Hmm. Um, so four routes have low floor vehicles for every service. Uh, seven routes are partly serviced, 
and 14 have none at all, which means they um, can't be used by people in a wheelchair. Mm. Um, and, yeah, one target was to have 80% of trams made into level access stops by 2018, uh, but currently it's falling far short of this at less than 25%. Um, so the wow. government are working, but not fast enough. Yeah. Um, it is one of the largest tram networks in the world, so it is expensive to do. Um, but, yeah, this is a pretty basic right to have access. Absolutely. Um, and they're not meeting the standards. And so, I yeah. think it just takes some creativity. Um, yeah, and I think they've been criticised for lack of consultation, as is yeah. often the way, unfortunately. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so even the way they've planned it at the moment, a lot of them aren't matching up. Um, so and really the way they've prioritised them is in terms of um, the highest volume of people, um, but actually um, it's better to have it for routes going to the hospital or rehab centres, which seems pretty um Pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah, self <laughs> Wow, that's really falling short as well. That's not just a little margin. That's quite yeah, clock's chunk. ticking. Yeah. <laughs> so 80% was supposed to be done by 2018 and only 25% have been done now. Yeah, 2019. So it's not great. Wow. <laughs> And we have the Disability Day broadcast tomorrow as well. Yeah, we do, of course, for tomorrow's International Day of Disability, People with a Disability. Yeah. Um, so we've got, yeah, a program broadcasting all day. Yeah, the 3CR will be broadcasting from 7am to 7pm. So, yeah, definitely make sure you tune in and have a listen to that. Um, my little alternative news segment is about an NGO called Give Power. Um, the headline is this. Kenya installs the first solar plant that transforms ocean water into drinking water, and it could be the solution to the global lack of water. So that's the headline that they've gone for. Um, and of course, like this sort of news um, would be great if it did transform the world's lack of water. The only um, the issue is, I mean, it's, it's a dangerous it's a dangerous headline to go with because it's it is misleading in some ways. So the article begins, and this is the press release that Give Power has sent out, saying that 2.2 billion people worldwide do not have access to safe drinking water facilities, and, and it also makes reference to a report published less than two months ago by UNICEF and the World Health Organization saying that one in every three people in the world does not, access, does not have access to drinking water. Um, so the, the whole article starts off with the, the reader really on side immediately with what the headline is saying. I mean, already I'm convinced there's a problem. Give Power has the solution. Let's share this piece of content on our social media. Um, but when you dig a little bit deeper, you kind of can pick it, pick it apart a little bit. And it firstly says that they have the first solar-powered desalination plant. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm not an engineer. <laughs> um, that turns ocean water into drinking water. But this isn't true. Um, there are solar-powered desalination plants here in Australia and in other places in the world, such as Abu Dhabi and Bora Bora. So... The whole the whole press release is crafted as a bit of a propaganda piece as to what I mean NGOs are up to in Africa anyway, and um, and it kind of sells the idea on how NGOs, billionaires, and mega corporations are necessary and vital to helping the undeveloped world. I say in quotation marks. <laughs> um, and it is also an incredibly shareable piece of 
content and it's an incredible, incredibly shareable article that can come up on Facebook and it's a feel-good article as well. So people are going to be sharing it. The only problem is, yeah, some true. of the facts <laughs> are very misleading and some of them, yeah, aren't true. And um, I just think we have to be very aware that um, we don't immediately assume that NGOs and billionaires and these mega corporations have the answer to problems that are very complicated, expensive systems to run and manage when there are actually way more natural processes and also processes that have been around for hundreds of years to do this. I mean, they're kind of selling themselves that they have the answer to salvation. Yeah, there always seems to be more factors at play than mm. that first meets mm. the eye. Yeah. Um, and I saw this article on Facebook. No surprise. Ah. <laughs> so that's where I come, first came across this news and then dug around a little bit deeper and yeah, found out a bit more. So that's my alternative news segment today. Oh, ultimately... I'm very happy that more people have water. That's not like, I'm not coming at it from that perspective. Just um, questioning a little bit on how the article has been written and the piece and the sort of propaganda that is trying to... Story behind the uh, headline. Exactly. Exactly that. So, we actually have an interview coming up real soon. We're just going to get Tim into the studio and we'll be back with Tim and Paddy just after the break. Very exciting. Friends, food and rebellious feminism. Keen to meet like-minded feminists passionate about overhauling the system? Want to revel in the global uprisings led by women? Celebrate highlights of 2019 with radical women. Swap ideas of what still needs to be done. Find out radical women's plans for early 2020 and get involved. Sunday, December the 8th, 5pm at the Solidarity Salon, 580 Sydney Road, Brunswick. All genders welcome. Phone 03-9388-0062 for more information. Radical Women is a 3CR supporter. Tune in to Power from the Margins. 3CR's broadcast for International Day of People with Disability on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, will feature BIPOC perspectives, live music, artists and discussions. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2019. So we're going to speak to Dr Timothy O'Leary from the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning at Melbourne Uni about an article he wrote for The Conversation last week, Making Every Building Count in Meeting Australia's Emissions Targets. Tim, you write that Australians have very high emissions per person and a quarter of our carbon emissions come from our buildings. What are we doing wrong? Oh, good morning, Paddy and and listeners. Um, So we have high emissions. Um, We're a country that uh, generates our power uh, through uh, fossil fuel use, so we have this issue with power generally. Now, power... We're using that across the economy. We're using it in transport. We're using it in agriculture and in, in business. But in, in our buildings, um, we need to be more efficient in the use of energy. Um, and so we're kind of um, faced with some challenges in that area. Uh, in my article, I point to work that's been done 
to try and meet this challenge. Um, uh, we've been looking at this sort of level of energy efficiency. How can we, how can we, you know, how can we be more energy efficient in our buildings? And that's across um, the, the technology of building, the the, uh, the the user behavior issues, and so forth. And also now with um, being able to generate electricity with solar power. You know, you know that our um, uptake in solar is actually impressive uh, relative to the rest of the world, and so it should be given the natural advantage we have. And then in my article, I, I talk about some limitations because our housing stock is um, is, 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 is old, um, but we also have this trend towards um, apartment living and higher density living, and there are limits to how you can push the use of solar um, in, uh, in that sort of scenario. So uh, your, your title comes from uh, the, the Green Building Council and Property Council's policy called, uh, toolkit um, called Making Every Building... Yep. What's in that toolkit, and what are the suggestions? Right. Yes. Well, um, I mean, I'm I'm sort of riding on the shoulders of, of work that's been done by, you know, uh, major industry players and collaborations between industry and uh, and academia, and part of sort of research projects that I've been involved in. Um, so the um, Property Council and the Green Building Council have uh, come up with um, a, a document which uh, speaks to all levels of government. That's uh, federal. Uh, state and um, local because each uh, different interactions in the built environment at those different levels we we have a system a federated system so whilst um, uh, you know states control essentially their own building legislation and, and, and building regulations uh, and of course at the, the sort of I suppose at the coalface councils make decisions about what, what, what can be built and what can't be built so um, essentially the document um, has got seven major policy themes um, such things as um, net um, zero buildings can we, can we achieve uh, a building which essentially has uh, net zero uh, energy uh, use um, there are um, proposals, recommendations to incentivize higher performance in, in buildings, uh, to look at the standards we have, what is the minimum you know, threshold um, that we currently have, uh, energy market reform. Um, we have a, a, a very complex energy market, um, uh, both in terms of um, the physical in infrastructure, the rules and how you can uh, generate power, distribute power, retail power. So we're looking at uh, things like uh, demand management. There are lots of um, things now happening in the energy market to look at. We're looking to government to, to provide leadership. Um, we also need the tools um, that um, will help us understand the performance of our buildings, rating, rating tools. Um, there are different um, approaches to rating the performance of buildings. Some will look at perhaps the user behavior as well as the building. Some will focus on the fabric. Some will bring in the whole of life or whole building approach where you look at appliances as well as the fabric of the building. And we're also looking at sort of transforming markets for individual materials and products. What are the sort of um, emerging um, technologies that will really help us drive um, emissions down a lower carbon uh, uh, building framework. How can I tell if I'm living in an inefficient building, a leaky building? Right, well, if you're paying the bill, you could probably look at your bill <laughs> and, and that would sort of compare it to your mates. Um, so you can also say, well, um, energy has been used in your building um, to heat and cool the building, so that's a seasonal thing. So you could be thinking to yourself, 
uh, why am I so uh, cold in winter? Uh, why is the uh, the building so cold? Um, why do I feel, um, you know, uh, when I uh, sit in that particular part of the building, um, a, a draft or a cold, you know, why do I feel that way? I don't feel that when I go around to mums or dads or, <laughs> or you, you know, your, your girlfriend or your partners. So you could think about um, also, um, you know, how many appliances do I have and do I need to have them on, um, you know, on standby all the time mm. or do I need to have them, you know, in the background? Could I, um, you know, look at that? Uh, also, um, uh, energy used in your uh, um, heating of water. You could say, well, you know, am I washing the dishes and, you know, the tap's running for five, ten minutes? I, I, need, I need to sort of uh, go back to basics and learn how to um, <laughs> wash some dishes in a more efficient way. Things like that. Your behavior, I suppose. Take a bit of, um, you know, a, a look at your behavior. Well, that reminds me of <laughs> one of my favorite lines from your essay. You, you wrote... Looking to improve regulations and codes and billion-dollar funds may be sensible ways to meet emission targets, but human empowerment is the secret weapon in improving energy performance and lowering emissions. So what's the first step to empowering yeah. people? Yeah, like, I mean, the statement, I'm, I'm, in the first step, well, you know, is to recognise buildings in themselves don't use energy. It's the people that are in the buildings yeah. that use the energy. So once you sort of say you, you, you do that, you um, look at your energy behaviour, essentially, um, the things you're doing. Now, it does... Um, it is going to change if you're in a work setting, you're dealing with the, the building that you work in, you have certain parameters or certain things that have been preset that you're not going to be able to change. Um, but you can um, look at that. But also in your home, you've got maybe more control uh, over what you, uh, you know, what you do and the sort of things I was just saying previously about whether it's to do with your heating and cooling needs, whether it's to do with the appliances, whether it's to do with uh, your hot water and so forth. And are there any uh, websites or apps that I could use to, to track my home energy usage? Yeah, well, if you had asked me that question 10, 15 years ago, I would have been going, oh, there's an app I found. You know, but now there, there's a plethora. There's a lot. Um, there are quite a few. Um, so there's, um, there's some really useful websites um, I am from a sense of um, here uh, in Victoria, um, the Victorian government has got um, programs that uh, you can access in regards to helping you understand um, your energy behaviour. So um, there's, a, there's schemes to uh, assist people transition to um, you know, lower carbon homes. So the government, um, Sustainability Victoria, um, the uh, Victorian Energy Upgrade Program, um, there's also in terms of um, where you're actually getting your energy, and we're talking possibly gas and electricity from, there's now a push or by the Victorian government to assist people in um, uh, understanding the, um, the retail market and the benefit in shopping around. And I've only just recently myself sort of become aware that you can get $50 for just doing nothing more than comparing your energy plan by going to a, a website, which is uh, a sort of called Energy Compare. And I think you've got until uh, middle of next year to do that. And you don't have to switch um, to get the 50 bucks. Oh, wow. You just have to go and um, uh, to the website, register, and, and just do a comparison because... Um, uh, again, Victoria has got the uh, least regulated energy market in the country. It's um, 
I think of about five, uh, if I'm right, five energy distributors, and then we have about 13 or, or something close to that uh, retailers, and all of those have, are after your business, and um, it's um, it's it's in your interest to uh, check, you know, and look for the best deal. Um, that, that, that website's a government website. Yeah, I'm not going to lose a, my... Yeah, it's a government website. Yeah, um, uh, it's called compare... I think it's important to put in the vic.gov. Uh, <laughs> because there are other, you know, other states have got energy um, efficiency drives and, and, and their government departments have got websites and there are some national... Uh, websites, uh, energy makeovers, energy easily, as I say, there's quite a lot. There are apps um, that, um, there, so it's for your appliances, there's a federal government app which is uh, just called Energy Rating, you can go to the App Store, that's designed to help you choose energy efficient appliances. For, um, for some time now we've had um, energy ratings of appliances. These are fridges, washing machines, air conditioners, and that app will um, have models, model numbers, and star ratings for these appliances and projected savings based on choosing a more efficient um, uh, appliance and so forth. Now, one, one question I wanted to ask you. On the bigger picture, you know, there's... Uh, Estates always growing on Melbourne's outer fringes, and then we've got 60,000 homes unoccupied. That's an estimate. Yeah. Um, you know, how can we make use of our living spaces better? Not just our energy, but our, you know, the, the space we've already got. Well, I mean, we could occupy those 60,000 unoccupied homes. We could uh, have mechanisms that discourage this sort of sitting on space and speculating that, you know, um, property price will go up and I'll sell it to someone else who might sit on it. I mean, there's that part of um, the property market that needs some scrutiny. To have that many uh, vacant properties is just not not good. It's not what we want. There's a huge amount of embodied carbon emissions in the buildings um, and they're not being used. So we could look at that. We can look at um, in our, um, say, um, provision of accommodation, whether it's for ourselves or, or, or rental to maximise the, the use of space by, by having maybe, you know, being less um, driven by consumerism and, and, and wanting to have um, you know, uh, rooms that really we will never occupy. You know, mm. that that are and that we can. You know, um, uh, we can we can you know just basically have design of buildings that minimizes um, dead space or unusable area. Make make our building area efficiencies better. That will that will drive a better outcome in terms of um, emissions. Definitely. Now, on a personal note, you rode uh, your bike here today. You're a green person. What, what's like one your best tip to improve, you know, my emissions today? To improve your emissions today, look, I I, I would say that if you have got um, 10, 15 minutes to spare, go to uh, and it's in the link at the end of my article to the um, uh, the low carbon living centres um, archive and. Um, in there, there's a, a number of free guides, and these are uh, guides um, that will um, be fascinating read and will help you uh, understand your own energy behavior, and you can take the findings and the recommendations from those guides, whether it is to, um, say, um, set the uh, temperature of your heating and cooling appliances slightly differently, whether it's to... Uh, 
consider maybe that window that doesn't have a um, a curtain or a, or a shading device. Uh, that it, it will give you these um, you know practical uh, tips for you to use, and um, uh, that would probably flow into a better energy performance for where you're living now uh, and lower your bills. So you have the benefit of um, reducing your emissions and also saving a bit of money. Well, thank you so much for that, Tim. Um, thanks so much for waking up so early and coming to the studio cool, and talking cool. to us. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Thank thanks, you. Tim. Broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to one of the community radio. Please subscribe now. Just come on to the 3CR community radio. Araja al istrakal an. Ningal ungalin samuha vanoli 3CRi kertu kondir kondir kal. Inre inayengal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Metsukketse Radio y Gayaranin, Horatanguda Melbumi Hai Kaotin, Hima Arzanakrovetsek Ipertrisiari Antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Lost But Not Forgotten is a report from the Commission for Children and Young People that examines the flaws in child protection and the suicides of 35 kids between April 2007 and April 2019. So there's a content warning on this uh, section that's coming up. Um, some, some listeners might find it distressing. Now, all of those kids were known to Child Protection Services, and I spoke to Raylene Haradine, who was a proud, watchable look, and Lachi Lachi woman, the chairperson of the Victorian Aboriginal Children and Young People's Alliance, and the CEO of the Bendigo and District Aboriginal Cooperative. I spoke to her about the report and I asked her first, how is the system failing these kids? Well, the current system, if you look at it, is um, an all-or-nothing approach and for, for the children. And if you look at that, it is, um, you know, some of the children or most of the children that were um, identified in the report were known to child protection and at the time um, the criteria was such that there wasn't enough criteria for them to be, that removal wasn't met. When you really break it down, only 17% of the child protection budget goes towards early intervention and, and that is why we are calling for a much higher investment from government to help these families. So that's sort of the... You know, what we're looking at, I think child protection works one way. It doesn't look at how to work with families and to give them that sort of the way that we operate from an Aboriginal point of view. So, so six of the 
35 kids were Aboriginal, and Aboriginal kids are vastly overrepresented in out-of-home care. Why are the current practices of statutory child protection so damaging to Aboriginal kids? Well, the overrepresentation of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care is one of Australia's gravest human rights concerns. Just alone in Victoria, Aboriginal children are around um, 15.8 times more likely to be in out-of-home care compared to their non-Aboriginal peers. And if the current system persists, the number of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care will double in the next six years. Clearly, this does show the level of crisis the current system is in. Um, in Australia, we have something called the Aboriginal Placement Principle. This prioritises that Aboriginal kids are placed with Aboriginal families and that's so that they can retain their connection to their culture and community. Aboriginal children, if you look at it, have, have cultural rights that are protected by the Human Rights Charter in both Victoria and internationally. And for our Aboriginal children, not only being strong in their culture and identity is their cultural right. There's also a protective factor, as we know, um, against poor mental health and all the other um, factors that our community are faced with on a daily basis. In, in the past, when kids have um, gone through the system and come back to the community, but they've been placed originally with non-Indigenous families, is it, is it difficult for the kids to reconnect with their family, with, with community, with culture? It is, absolutely. Um, if we, It's um, like anything. And we've, there are so many issues with the current way the current system works. Um, first of all, the current system focuses on the child and not the family, as I've spoken about. Um, if a child has been um, in care for a long period of time, this really makes it difficult for the child to connect with their family, but also the location of families and um, to or their parents to be able to care for them. If you look at secondly, we're you know after a long time returning to community, it might it for the child it may seem like they're going back home to strangers because they've been in care for so long. Um, under our Victorian legislation, we um, we want to see that every child has what we call a cultural support, cultural plan, um, and this cultural support plan ensures that Aboriginal ch children have regular contact with their with their community, and so that their connection is not lost. But unfortunately, there is a large non-compliance, um, particularly um, that's that has been taken place. I think we're starting to work at the moment, particularly, um, you know, for good news is that we are working closely with the Victorian government and mainstream community sector at the moment to see that, you know, that um, all children have a cultural support plan. And um, if we were to, if that's to occur, then that is one of those protective factors that we have for our children in moving forward so that they know who they're with the cultural support plan. They do know who their family is, their their mob, their connection to the community if they've been removed from community and um, those, those kind of um, factors and also they get to um, connect with their community or their families on a regular basis whilst if they're in care with um, outside of their family group.
The other thing um, I wanted to mention, one as we saw last week with the report that was released from the Principal Commissioner and the Aboriginal Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People, the report of In Our Own Words, which is a systemic inquiry into the lived experience of children and young people in Victoria and the out-of-home care system. That report really highlights and um, looks at what the issues have been for, because they interviewed over, I think it was around um, 204 young people in, um, in Victoria, and they, that was from rural, regional and metropolitan Victoria. And that were the children who were currently living in, a, in or had recently left out of home care. So they told their stories around what that meant for them, um, living in this, these environments um, and just some of the quotes and, and the stories of, if you read the report, it's, um, I think it's timely that we've um, found the voice, you know, we're, we're able to be a, to listen to the voice of the, the young person instead of, you know, thinking that we as a um, adults and government and that can make decisions on behalf of our children. I think it's important that we hear the voice of our children and if, if you know, if people take the time to look at that report to see it can be very sad but also it's and confronting but it's it brings to light what what we've been exposing what what's been exposed, what our children have been exposed to in the system for for so long. Yeah, there's definitely an element of ageism um, both ways, you know, with, with the elderly in, um, in aged care and then young people in um, child protection. Uh, what, what other reform do you, do you think needs to be seen in the overhaul of the child protection system, especially for the well-being of Aboriginal kids? Well, I think one of the things we're looking at, and this is particularly um, as my role as the chair of the Aboriginal um, Children's Alliance for Victoria, is um, we're actually calling for a, um, um, that's come out of the report recently, for a, a round table, an Aboriginal round table, to bring to light the systemic failings of child protection and mental health systems and on Aboriginal children and young family in the carers, so, which will... Um, ultimately provide our opportunity to to highlight the innovative and solutions that have, have driven that have been driven in our communities over the the many years around how we've been having an effect positive effect on our community and our children. So I you know, I think that's one of the key drivers that we would be looking at as part of the um key work that needs to occur. I think when we look at things in particular, well not things, but when we look at um, um, how can we fix up the systems, a lot of the time it's government usually have, they have dictated to us around what needs to happen. So it's, um, I think for us in Victoria it's really um, important to highlight the work that we're doing with government here in Victoria because they're, they're wanting to work with us. They're wanting to hear our voice in how we can make a difference for our children and make changes because we know what's going on on the ground, you know, on the ground for our community. We're faced with it every day when our community comes in, come into our organisations and are seeking a service or, um, you know, they come in um, because... They're, and I talk about it all the time. A community 
are not living, they're just, some of them are just surviving because because of the social environment that they're in. But the the you know the negative factors that they're faced with on a daily basis, just to be able to be a good parent, but also to be able to survive because um, their culture is lost um, and. They want to be a good parent, but sometimes there are contributing factors that go towards them not being able to do that. So, and when we work with them, it's um, as organisations across Victoria, we work from with our communities from a strength-based approach. That's no non-judgmental around what the work that we do. So, yeah, ultimately we want to make sure that we support our families so that they can be good parents, but they so that our their children. Our community's children can remain with their families. So that's that's with the uh, Bendigo and District Aboriginal Cooperative, which you're CEO, CEO of. And I wonder if you could tell us about the services you provide for families in the community. Yeah, um, we with pleasure. Look, we do provide a holistic level of service. Um, we're just one of um, many Aboriginal organisations in Victoria that that, that work with our own community. Our organisation is like a, if you call it like a bit of a health hub and a cultural hub. Um, we have GPs on site, counsellors, justice workers. We also run all sorts of programs, in, you know, including family violence supports, men's groups, women's groups. So we have a, a an organisation that looks at the whole person, not just, um, you know, individual. You know, if someone comes in with a broken arm, we don't just treat them for the broken arm. We, we actually look at them as a, from a holistic point of view, but then extend onto that. So it's about us working with them individually and also if they need support for their family. We in particular, um, for BDAC, have been... The, we were the first rural ACO. Um, VACA was the first metropolitan agency to, to take on um, Section 18 or guardianship, and we're the first rural ACO to, to take on guardianship in pilot form in 2016. And then we, then last year in December in 2018, we were fully authorised to take on children in out in out of home care, fully making decisions and. Um, so we've the work we've done in this space is is we've just seen so many um, positive changes for our community, but we've seen a lot of our families um, and our children remaining with their families with the support that we've provided, and that's from that holistic point of view with a non-judgmental approach and ultimately making sure that we do whatever work we do is in the best interest of the child. So just the, the results that we've had have just seen families um, living together, you know, in safe and happy homes. So we've kept children with either their parent or guardian or they might remain or, or reside with their kin. So that piece of work that we're doing is just... I see that as astronomical because it's something that hasn't happened before in you know in my time because we've always seen children that have been in limbo in the uh, child protection system and that's not no fault to child protection it's just the way that the system operates and how they're funded to do that so I would you know and I know that Ballarat's um, 
going into um, guardianship as well, and so has um, Nernda Pinachuka. So, you know, it's if anything, hopefully we're going to see a lot of our um, Aboriginal agencies taking on guardianship to be able to make decisions for their children in their, that live in their community because it's real important that That's this important happens. Work. That's important work. Yeah. Any families or kids listening who are struggling, who can they contact for support? Um, well, there's a few options actually. You can either children and families can either contact their local Aboriginal health, you know, their organisation, um, and because we are in a position to be able to advocate for 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 them, we can also um, if they don't want to use an Aboriginal organisation, we can always support, you know, refer them to other support services in particular, like um, the other community service aid organisations particularly that um, provide help. Um, if if you're in out-of-home care and wish to make a complaint, you can always give the Commissioner for Children and Young People a call um, and that's, that's okay, that's a good thing. Um, and, of, you know, and of course if anyone's in um, real crisis, if they're in crisis, they can also call the Kids Helpline or Lifeline. So that's, there, there are various options and, you know, we know that things can be tough and, um, you know, always we don't want to really downplay that. But I have seen, you know, we've seen some ultimate um, positives come out of some of our community who have been in major crisis in the past um, and they've come through with help and with the understanding and the belief that I suppose some of them, some of our community don't, um, have not had that... Um, uh, trust, yeah. or and the, and people don't believe in them. So, bef so when you have someone that actually believes in you and trusts you, you can. It's amazing how people thrive and grow, and you know, and become very um, healthy in the way that what they really want to do. But when someone's constantly pushing you down, it's very hard to be able to stand up and and be strong. That was Raylene Harradine speaking to us. And you're listening to 3CR Monday Morning Breakfast. Thanks, Paddy. Um, now we're going to listen to a, an audio... Uh, an audio? Of course it's audio. <laughs> this is the radio. Um, a segment that I did with Dr. Intan Paramadita, um, who is an Indonesian fiction writer and an academic. She holds a PhD from New York University and teaches media and film studies at Macquarie University in Sydney. She's also an author of a short story collection, Apple and Knife, and her upcoming novel, Gentan Yangan, The Wandering, received a Pen Translates Award from English Pen and Pen Home Translation Fund from Pen America. Dr. Intan Paramadita was a recent panellist at the Feminist Festival Broadside put on by the Wheeler Centre, and um, on that panel, they were speaking about decolonising feminism. So in my conversation with Intan, we spoke about decolonising feminism, decolonising education and literature, and what feminism looks like at the moment in Indonesia. A recent quote from Intan is, identifying myself as a feminist writer is still important and still a political stance, but I need to be constantly aware of the implications, power relations, and more importantly, the responsibility that comes with it. 
So my first question to Intan was, what privileges and responsibilities for her come from identifying as a feminist writer from Indonesia? I think I, I also need to acknowledge my privilege here. So I received invitations to speak in forums um, in different countries. I think that's one privilege that I need to acknowledge. And And usually I... Uh, get questions around feminism in Indonesia. So it seems that I'm the, the you know, the feminist author from Indonesia. I'm, I'm the spokesperson. Yeah. And I, I really need to be cautious with, with that kind of positioning because obviously I'm not the feminist author from <laughs> Indonesia. There are so many other yeah. feminists um, and they um, their works are very fascinating. So, uh, but I'm also aware that it's it's really it's really hard um, when you are really um, when you have that platform. Then the question is, what do you do with your privilege? What do you do with your platform? So the way I did it, I'm not sure if, if this was right, and I think I will I will need to. Um, think further about my my actions. Um, I will speak about you know various initiatives in Indonesia and also uh, various kinds of expressions, including in literature, in film, how feminist um, writers and actors, artists, they are not you, you know this silent Asian women mm -hmm. accepting their fate. They are uh, really active in resisting um, the state construction of gender and sexuality, uh, resisting um, uh, uh, religious norms, patriarchal norms. Um, maybe it seems like, you know, just merely, uh, it, it's just name dropping, but I think there's something needs to be done uh, to say that, hey, I'm not exceptional. I'm just I'm part of a larger network, and you need to know my network. And how, how is feminism defined in Indonesia? Without making you the spokesperson, <laughs> just as yeah. as one from one viewpoint, from your viewpoint, and from the community that you um, that you know exists there, how how mm. is it defined, and how does it what does it look like? So um, we don't have um, a, a solid historiography of feminism because women's movement was completely erased uh, during the Suharto regime. So the Suharto regime, um, um, it emerged in 1965 and it lasted for 32 years. And uh, basically it was an, um, an erasure of women's movement. Uh, the, uh, the, the communist uh, uh, women, they were sent to jail, they were raped, they were violated. Um, some of them died. Um, so it's it's really an erasure of women's movement and women's participation in politics was discouraged. And so after 98, we began to start new things. We, we started, it's not really new because there were um, some uh, uh, counter movements, uh, uh, feminist movements in the, in the 80s as well. It's just that they were not really, um, you know, they they were not uh, super visible. Um, so there's a, a little bit of disjuncture now, especially among the younger generation. They thought that oh, feminists, they are what we can see on Twitter. They mm -hmm. are the you know, um, the Taylor Swift kind of feminism because we we have we do have something like that in Indonesia, the celebrity feminism. Um, where you think that that's the only 
expression of uh, 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 feminism. And that's quite hard because we don't have a solid historiography. Um, you know, women's groups in different parts of Indonesia, especially if you are in remote areas, they, they are not busy on Twitter. They don't advertise their what they do on Twitter. So it's it's a bit hard. Um, I mean, the, it's feminism in Indonesia is very diverse. There's Muslim feminism. There's um, Eastern Indonesia kind of feminism. But often, what people see in the mainstream public is very limited. I see, I would say, you know, liberal feminists are um, are the most visible ones. Mm. But certainly, it's more complex than that. You're listening to 3CR, and that was Dr. Inten Panamandita, an Indonesian fiction writer and an academic. In part two of our conversation, we speak about decolonizing feminism, education, and literature. I begin by asking Inten, what does decolonizing feminism and education look like? So this conversation emerged... Um around late 1980s, 1990s, the concern um, among academics, feminist academics and feminist uh, activists were mainly about the problems of representation, the problems of speaking about, uh, speaking for the other in the production of feminist knowledge. So what happens if... Western feminist scholars go to um, the third world and then talk about feminist experience there. Well, on the one hand, that can be great. You 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 talk about the problems there and you uh, introduce those problems to the wider public. But at the same time, the the experiences of women in the third world. Um, are kind of colonized under, under the umbrella of feminism. So I guess decolonizing feminism really requires to think about um, feminists, how, how we um, remove our biases when we uh, consider feminist issues. We need to be careful not to view them from a Western-centric um, perspective and and for me I think the relation is more complex than just um, the West versus the rest although it's it's definitely there the, the problem of power is definitely there but I think because I'm from the third world right and I I, I know that uh, my position is implicated in a larger power structure and often I am in the position of the um, uh, someone uh, that's uh, not really having the power. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that I am completely powerless. There are different power structures, and in those different structures, uh, my position keeps shifting. So I need to be really aware of my own biases, and probably as a third-world woman, I am... uh, um, actually exercising power as well when I collaborate or when I talk about um, the people who or the women who have less uh, uh, visibility or women with uh, a limited platform. Mm. And how, yeah, how important is that understanding your own privilege and being very honest about it? I think it's really important um, because 
you know, it, sometimes I know this is um, this seems very simple, but it's not. Sometimes when we are we are very well versed with theories, decolonial theory, postcolonial theory, but is it really something that's translated into practice? I think we we really need to to question that all the time, uh, because often. And this happens a lot in the academia because I'm an academic and then I interact with scholars who are experts in postcolonial studies and um, uh, decoloniality. And uh, I assume that you um, you're really aware of uh, power relation when it comes to interaction with the actual people. Right. Not not just theory, but that's not. Often this is not really the case because um, in the academia we know like postgraduate students feel that they're you know not being supported be, due to their um, skin color for instance or if you are a non-white scholar not, especially non-white male scholar if you're a woman of color your authority is questioned all the time you are being questioned for your originality and often the kind of question that emerge is the question that's borderline academic gaslighting. So people are not really aware of the power that they have and the implication of that and how uh, power, uh, I mean, knowledge, knowledge is distributed in an uneven, uh, uneven terrain. Uh, let's say international students in the academia, the knowledge um, is it is really about unequal distribution of knowledge. For instance, I didn't speak English until I was, you know, 20. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so English is a problem. And then if we evaluate uh, students based on their English language ability, their academic writing ability, um, is it fair? Uh, are we evaluating the writing structure based on our, you know, Western standard? These kind of things. Um, I mean, in practice, I think in theory, a lot of people are increasingly aware of um, the need to decolonize knowledge. Yeah. But in practice, yeah, it's, um, I think there are still biases everywhere. Your collection of short stories, Apple and Knife, was published in 2018. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that particular project and, yeah, how you went about collecting and gathering these short stories? I think that the fact that it just came out in uh, 2018, that tells a lot about um, the politics of uh, circulation in our uh, contemporary global literature today. Um, So the stories... From uh, in that book, they were written quite long ago. They were from 2005, uh, 2010. They were uh, from two short story collections published in Indonesia. And um, the theme um, is, I think it's similar across the board. It's about disobedient women. Um, and I uh, work with horror and myths and fairy tales to talk about um, how women resist within a specific uh, uh, environment within their confining structure. And I kind of view that the act of translating and, and publishing the work itself, I think it's, it's, um, it's a good first step for decolonizing feminism. So you, you kind of um, make sure that there are different kinds of expression of feminism. I mean, yeah, you have Angela Carter and you have Carmen Maria Machado, um, but there's also 
hear this uh, feminist work from Indonesia, and if you dig more, there are other uh, works like this from from um, non-Western countries. Um, the book was first published in Australia, and then it got picked up by a UK publisher. But I'm very happy that I worked with Brow Books. I mean, they uh, their work is really, I think it's really radical. I mean, they promote... Um, Asian Australians, Aboriginal Australians, they promote um, narratives that are not in the mainstream. Um, so I think in order to decolonize literature, we need initiatives like this, and we need to support um, uh, small publishers uh, who want to diversify um, literature. And that was Intern Paramandita talking about decolonizing feminism and knowledge. listen to 3CR Monday Breakfast and now we're going to be hearing a conversation with Leah Rupana, an Associate Professor of Sociology and Co-Director of the Policy Lab at the University of Melbourne. I spoke to Leah about her research into gender-linked fate and why white married women are voting conservative across the US. Leah and her colleagues have published an article which goes into detail about their study which we'll have links to on the Monday Breakfast page. But for now, we're just going to hear from Leah herself talking about her research. I have colleagues at Oregon State University, and one of my colleagues has, has done a lot of work on uh, racial minorities' sense of linked fate, or the idea that certain groups tend to feel or have this sense of connection to the other, to people of their group, and that that leads them to behave or act in ways that are consistent, and in particular in terms of political attitudes. So, for example, in the U.S., blacks tend to vote consistently Democratic, and part of the reason they do that, or consistently to the left, is that um, they see their futures and fates as tied to other members of that group. So if something bad happens to blacks holistically, that is going to have an impact on my life. So whereas I may be, um, you know, have different individual preferences, I'm going to vote consistent with with those of my group because I know that the group is more important than the individual. So the, um, the American National Election Survey, in a one-off for the Hillary Clinton, in anticipation of the Clinton-Trump election, asked the same linked fate question of women. So the, the question was, um, do you see your future or fate as connected to other women? And if so, to what extent do you view that? So we thought, oh, you know, it would be kind of interesting to see if, gender-linked fate functions the same way as racial-linked fate. And so what we did is we took this data and we looked at the connection between gender, marital status, race, gender-linked fate, and political attitudes. And what we found was that married white women see their futures and fates as less connected to other women, and as a result of that are voting more conservatively they're less likely to see themselves as connected to Democrats. They're more likely to vote for conservative parties. We thought this was really interesting. We tried to publish it. No one cared because everyone thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. And then you have the Trump 
Clinton election and Hillary Clinton loses. And in particular, she loses amongst white women. So actually what our study was foreshadowing was what was about to happen for the Clinton campaign, even though we and probably they did not realize that we were onto something quite important. Wow. So you did this study ahead of that election? Yes. Oh my gosh. And, yes. and how, why, why were the polls so wrong? Why were, and why was the, um, the campaign, the Clinton campaign so confident in the, the white woman vote? Or were they at all? Okay. So this is like, you're asking the million dollar question, right? Like, why is mm. the poll, why are the polls wrong? I won't speak to that, but what I, I mean, I, that's like a more complicated question. But what I will say is, I think what's been really interesting for us since this study is that, Well, okay, so I think there's two things happening. One is that what we were foreshadowing is that this assumption that women are going to see their, are going to vote consistently or vote for the, for the greater good of all women is true for some groups, in particular black women. It doesn't matter if they're married, single, or divorced. They see themselves as more connected to other women and that, that helps influence their attitudes. The same, interestingly, is true for white, single, or divorced women. So white, single, or divorced women see their futures or fates as tied more to other women, and they also tend to vote more to the left than the right. And what's interesting is we're building, excuse me, we're building on additional research that has shown that the more a woman relies on her own income and salary, the more likely she is to see, um, see kind of discrimination or issues that are issues around gender inequality. There's something distinct that is happening for white women when they get married. We don't have longitudinal data, but what we're showing is that this group is different than single white women, is different than divorced white women, and is very different than black women for whom marital status doesn't matter. Okay, I promise I'm almost done, but I'm going to say one more thing. No, I love it. Keep going. (laughs) And what's been interesting for us is that, you know, we kind of, I think, stumbled upon this relationship that we didn't anticipate. This was not a primary research agenda, right? Like, we didn't Mm. have this big, like, passion to understand this. We just kind of stumbled on it by default. And we have found, what we've found subsequently is that this relationship um, helps explain lower abortion support. So we have a recent article that just came out, and you can see that white married women, the fact that they feel less connected to other women, does explain their preferences for um, pro-life as a pro-choice. They are more conservative on abortion. This at the, this moment in time, that's really interesting for the U.S. because you have these states that are passing heart bills heartbeat bills. This is the idea that um, they're basically criminalizing abortion, right, Um, in states that are predominantly, uh, that have a high concentration of married white women. So so it may help explain why in certain states these are passing by, you know, the majority of the electorate, even though it feels counterintuitive because it feels like it's at the expense of women's interests, right? But in order for you to see that that's important for all women to have a right to abortion. You have to see yourself as connected to all women. So we're finding this kind of very interesting relationship that is structured by both race and marital status. And marriage is showing to to shift couples' attitudes and make them more similar to each other as you you, um, go on in your research. Um, But why why can we see this happening now? Um, I think that's a re- that is actually like a really good question that requires more inquiry. So I would say this pattern has been established at least in the sociological research for say the past 20 years. Um, I think what w- so it seems 
So, and one of the reasons why this is happening is in part because marriage creates a dependency often, not always, right, but often creates a dependency between women and men, women on men, in part because women tend to reduce their labor force participation, in particular when they start to have kids. And so what that creates is this kind of economic, they become more economically dependent upon their husbands. Um, and it makes sense when you think about it from that perspective that, that if I, if my family's well-being I'm a white married woman and my family's well-being is dependent upon my husband being a breadwinner, that any of the kind of threats to his status really have very serious consequences for me because that means that my family is earning less money, my children are less well off. And so I would expect actually that this relationship might be actually even more intense than say the 1950s in which you have this kind of class, this real intensification of the breadwinner home maker divide mm-hmm. um, more research does need to be done I'm speculating right I'm not basing that on 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 I'm, I'm, ba- I'm basing that on kind of existing studies but no one has looked at this particular question of gender and age. Um, <clears throat> but I think what is interesting or why this is salient now is because this pattern is having very severe consequences in particular you know no one into the, the polls were totally wrong about Trump ending up in office and, and interestingly you have this president who's saying, you know, incredibly misogynistic things that should divide women, that should just push women together. So how can you have a president like Trump who's saying things like, you know, you're going to grab women by the genitalia, and that doesn't offend all women? Well, it yeah. doesn't offend all women if, if some of the women actually don't particularly care about, are not, their primary orienting ideology is not around connection to other women, but it's around how do, we, how do I protect my breadwinning husband? You see it also in the Kavanaugh case, and you see it around the intensification around the Me Too campaign too, right? Why is there backlash around, is there backlash among some women around the sexual assault and rape? And what you see is some women are saying, hey, watch out, you're coming for my son. This Me Too movement, right? It's it's at the expense of my son. It's the expense of my husband. And so I think there are questions around which women are saying that. Is this about this kind of lack of connection to other women? Is it because... There's a preference. There is kind of the orienting ideology amongst certain groups of women is that it's actually most important to protect the men in my life because this is very these are this is um, tied to the family success and well-being. And do you think that's um, do you think that weak link to to their gender is something to do with the the very like motherly need to support and nurture potentially flawed and very unpredictable childlike men sometimes it's absolutely tied to traditional gender roles so it's if you have um and traditional gender roles seem to permeate amongst some groups and less amongst others so it is tied a hundred percent to this idea that men are the breadwinners and that that is what is effective for the functioning of the family and you can see since the 1970s that men's status is actually eroded in particular college educated white white men right so you're seeing a flat line in returns to earnings so men are earning less mm. or, or the return you know they're kind of their salaries haven't increased in the u.s since the 1970s it's pretty flat so you are seeing actually on some level men under threat right women have moved into the labor market at higher rates um uh you have a me too campaign that's that's actually really shifted the cultural narrative around sexual assault victimization um, and this notion that you need to believe the women. 
So there's all this accumulation of events that are actually very, very threatening to the status of, of men. And so how are people responding to that? And that was Leah Rupana talking about her research into why white married women are voting more conservatively. And the article is called Why White Married Women Are More Likely to Vote Conservative Parties. And you can read the rest of that either on the conversation where it's been published. We're going to have it in the show links to our show. um, And I highly recommend it. It's a fascinating read.
that was The Children Came Back by Briggs, featuring Gurumal and Dwayne Everett-Smith. Who's next, Ella? And, yeah, next we've got Nicole Lee phoning in. Um, And Nicole Lee is a disability rights activist and works in the prevention of family violence with the Orange Door. Um, And I'm going to be speaking to her about the video she made for Do Your Thing, uh, which is a series of short videos produced by Women with Disabilities Victoria. Good morning, Nicole, and welcome to Monday Breakfast. Good morning. How are you going? Very well, thanks. And um, thanks so much for um, taking the time to speak with us and for your video. Um, I really enjoyed it, and I love the whole series. Um, Just wanted to speak to you about um, the lack of representation of women with a disability in the media. It seems like we don't hear enough about it, and on the few occasions we do hear from women, um, it's usually the story told for them. Um, what's the importance of women with a disability being in charge of their own narrative? Well, for me, sort of being in charge of my own narrative means that, I, you know, I can tell it from my perspective. Like, other people can try and understand, you know, things that we've been through and, and things that we're doing, but it, it's it's retelling of somebody else's story, and that's not actually, um, I guess, in, in, in a pure sense, telling our truth. So... Being able to say something that's happened to you in your own way, in your own words, for me has been really, uh, I guess, part of my recovery as well after leaving family violence. Um, you know, having that, you know, pain and experience acknowledged by other people um, was really important for me. And, and the thing is, I don't think there's enough of our voices out there. Uh, telling our stories from our own perspectives because, you know, for a long time, I guess, especially in the family violence field, lots of people have, um, especially the sector, have spoken on behalf of victim survivors. And, um, and, and the thing is, when somebody else tells it, they get it wrong um, or uh, they miss certain points. It's, it's not the same. It's like reading a book, you know. It's not quite the same as when you've lived it and when you're speaking your truth. Yeah, especially if we're trying to fix a problem, I think speaking with someone yeah. with the actual lived experience makes such a practical effect as well. Um, yeah, it does. Do you think it's improving? Do you think we're seeing more um, services and initiatives where people with a disability are in control of how the um, response is made? Uh, I would like to say yes, but um, it's definitely improved in in from compared to where we were, say, five years ago. We've, we've voluntarily improved. And that's come off the back of other people advocating and other people speaking out over many, many years. I mean, the disability movement didn't start yesterday and it certainly didn't start with me speaking out. Um, but I think there's a greater space and a greater desire to hear from people directly rather than retold stories than what there ever has been before. And um, what changes do you want to see happen? Well, more people speaking out in this space, that's for sure. Um, I would like to see more autonomy for people with a disability when it comes to our Disability Royal Commission. Um, I'd really, that's that's a huge thing for a lot of us at the moment is that, you know, that's not actually playing out the way that people had advocated for. Um, and that's around, uh, again, other people speaking for us or other people thinking what, uh, or telling us what they think we need to be able to tell our stories and you know, and that's not quite matching up because, again, we're not actually being listened to. Um, Even in this, um, sorry, the Royal Commission, you feel you're not... Um, they're not you no, know, no, well, there's, there's issues and there's problems that are happening with the Royal Commission and 
they don't seem to be listening to people with a disability and it seems to be you know, all the able-bodied people in charge you know, coming out with ideas and thoughts around what it is that the Commission needs and it's, it's not quite matching up with what the disability community have been asking for and have been advocating for. Um, but, you know, there is a lot of concerns around that at the moment and, you know, and a lot of us are pushing quite hard, um, you know, trying to have things fixed and, and rectified. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we just seem to get pushed to the side a lot. I mean, you know, for a long time, especially for myself, that we've been spoken down to. Like, I know uh, just the other week, um, you know, I don't think people intend intend to speak the way they do sometimes to people with a disability, but... You know, when somebody starts to slow down what they're saying and they get a bit of a sing-song into their voice, I feel that um, tone in somebody's voice quite deeply inside me and I take it incredibly personally. Um, and, and, you know, it's getting people to realise some of these unconscious responses that they have to us, um, you know, and, and, and to start noticing when they're doing it and, and to start, you know, making ways to change, you know, um, you know, when they are interacting with us and when they are unconsciously... Um, doing these sorts of things, or you know, um, you know, little acts of you know ableism towards people with a disability, for want of a better word. Sorry, I'm not describing that very well. Um, but I think the, the good thing with the videos that just came out is that um, having people with a disability represented in a far greater capacity than we ever had before, and 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 has showing. You know, that we can speak up for ourselves and that we can articulate what it is that's happening or, or what it is that we're doing. And, you know, I guess putting out their role models for other people with a disability to, you know, show that you don't have to be, uh, um, you know, the stereotype of a woman with a disability as being passive or needing to be cared for, that we can be independent and we can be strong and we can be vulnerable and we can be beautiful and we can be all of these things. We don't have to be necessarily, um, you know, the stereotypical passive woman or if we are outspoken, then we get labelled with being, you know, that stubborn disabled woman as well. So, you know, we can be whoever we want to be. Yeah, and I love how um, in your video you speak about going to university as an adult and how for a long time um, that wasn't even presented to you as an option, really, um, for something as simple as dyslexia. Um, do you think it's yeah. getting better for those sorts of things, designing learning um, for all people of their abilities, which actually creates space um, to contribute to society and stuff? Oh, I'd like to say yes to that one again. <laughs> but university has been, yeah, especially with the dyslexia and having to know everything being online and having to navigate the online world, um, that it's actually actually complex. And I've, I've really, really struggled a lot with a lot of the online um, material um, with the university and navigating that world, and it is and it creates a huge barrier. Um, I hire a um, a tutor, a, a peer mentor, to help me at uni to to get through and navigate that world. So we catch up a couple of hours every week to help support me do that, and I've been able to access that under the NDIS. But otherwise, you know, I think with with everything moving online, um, I think that world is starting to be forgotten and I'd like to see those barriers broken down um, you know whilst we're breaking down barriers we're creating new ones with new technology which I think is becoming an increasing issue yeah yes yeah, still lots to be done for sounds <laughs> <laughs> yes. and um, we've just got a couple of minutes left but can you tell our listeners about um, what you do with the orange door 
Okay, so I don't actually I don't actually work at the Orange Door. I've um, I help design the Orange Door so it's inclusive and accessible to people with a disability, just like many other people have done as well for other different elements of diversity. But the Orange Door is Victoria's family violence um, uh, support and safety hub. So if you're experiencing family violence and you're in one of the locations for the Orange Door. Uh, what the Orange Door has managed to is meant to be able to do, which is different to the system before, is that I remember having to call around multiple services and asking for help and getting thrown from one phone number to another. Whereas the Orange Door, you go in there and they do a whole assessment of you as an individual and bring in all the elements around, you know, do you have a disability? And they look for the service that's right for you and support you in handing you over, you know, and referring you on to the onto an appropriate service. Um, it's meant to put the client at the centre versus, you know, we were hunting around the services, so you're in the middle and the services are actually hunting around you. So it's sort of flipping the system on its head and making the system do the work rather than the person in the midst of crisis do the work. Yeah, and trying to yeah. navigate all these systems, yeah. which are hard if you do work in them, let alone if you're someone um, who has less resources yeah. at the time. <laughs> Yeah, and when, when you reach out, it might only be your one chance to reach out to a service, but if that service turns around and says to you, no, sorry, I can't help you, we're not a disability service, or we're not an LGBTI-friendly service, um, which, you know, people have been told that in the past around, um, you know, we can't help somebody with your lifestyle, it might be the only time you've got to reach out to that service, and if they drop the ball, then, you know, what, how many years are you then going to be stuck for again before you reach out a second time or a third time or a fourth time. But it's just not good enough to um, to not grab onto somebody when they're reaching out for help. We need to be grabbing onto them and giving them every opportunity to be able to get out versus saying, no, sorry, we can't help you. Here's another number. Try them. Yeah, yeah it's nice to see um, something else it's being fine. done. All right, we're going to have to wrap up, Nicole, but thanks so much for chatting to us. And, um, yeah, we'll put a link to the Do Your Thing video on our website. It's released twice weekly, I believe. Yes. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, Nicole. Tune in to Power from the Margins, 3CR's broadcast for International Day of People with Disability on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we'll feature BIPOC perspectives, live music, artists and discussions. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2019. And yeah, don't forget to check in tomorrow, Power from the Margins. Um, it's going to be 12 hours, 7am to 7pm with BIPOC people, also black people, indigenous people and people of colour with various kinds of disabilities. And it's going to be one to listen to. I'm certainly going to tune in. But what a show we've had. My God. Guys. Yeah, action packed. <laughs> Started Super. off with Tim O'Leary uh, and then Raylene Hardine. And then we went to Intempera Medita and Leah Rupana. And finished up with Nicole Lee. Beautiful. And we've got women on the line next. And make sure to check in to tomorrow's show and Monday Breakfast next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.